Hello and welcome back to Opposition Cast. Returning to you after a bit of a break. I hope you haven't missed us too much. In politics, as in battle, it's very important to know your enemy, whether it's to identify their next likely line of attack or to identify their weaknesses and see where you might be able to breach their defences. It's something which is most apparent, perhaps, when we see politicians preparing for debates, most notably Prime Minister's questions, but also in recent times, television debates. And they have teams of advisers trying to anticipate the lines of attack their opponents will try and deploy and to prepare zingers of a line that they can get in to try and highlight their opponents' weaknesses as well. And my guest on this episode is someone who knows an awful lot about that. Tom Hamilton worked as a policy specialist for the Labour Party as a political advisor for 10 years. He was head of research for the party and also helped to prepare Ed Miliband, Harriet Harman and Jeremy Corbyn for Prime Minister's Questions. And as he says on his biography, spending more of his time pretending to be David Cameron than he ever expected to. And he's since made good use of that inside knowledge by co-authoring, alongside Aisha Hazarika, the book Punch and Judy Politics, an insider's guide to Prime Minister's Questions, which goes into both the history of the weekly clashes in the House of Commons, how they came about, but also looks at the dynamic between the Leader of the Opposition and the Prime Minister and the tactics and strategies that they can deploy to try and maximise their advantage in the Chamber. It's really a fascinating read and gets into a lot of detail, but also sheds some light on the wider political dynamic that's apparent between the parties. Um, and that formed a large part of our uh, discussion. But I began by asking Tom about how he got into uh, politics, how he came to be an advisor to the Labour Party. Uh, and his time there began actually when the Labour Party was still in government. Yeah, I... I joined the policy team in, I think, 2008, covering uh, health policy when we were still in government. And that's the um, that's the bit of the party that in those days was was focused on providing, well, two things, really, partly managing the policy development process in terms of building towards a manifesto, but largely on the sort of stakeholder management side rather than the blue skies thinking policy wonk side of things and also working on attack opposition research so it's it's not to to blow my own trumpet too much to say that I probably knew more about Tory health policy in the pre-2010 election period than most people did because it was my it was my job to and although it became a point of attack after 2010 I think probably rightly that much of the Tories health policy reforms that Andrew Lansley announced after the election um, were things that the public wasn't expecting Although that's probably true, I think I knew and a lot of people knew that they had talked about that quite a lot in opposition, actually, just that they hadn't made it a central theme of what they were trying to do. So there's always a dilemma in, well, I was going to say in opposition, in dealing with your opponents in politics, how much you draw attention to their policies at a technical level and the contradictions within them, and how much you just think this is too complicated for, for anyone to understand. Let's gloss over that and talk about the big picture stuff, which might be they want to cut things or they're going to make it harder for you to see a doctor, or whatever it might be, that is just easier to get into a sentence than they have some quite complex restructuring proposals for the NHS that are going to be quite 
difficult to uh, to achieve without without major upheaval which that while true and proved true was just never going to be a particularly effective attack line so we didn't use it mm. and you said they're dealing with your opponents so i think it's it's worth pointing out isn't it that when we're talking about opposition it's not just a case of, of um, dealing with the government dealing with the opposition there is that this sort of oppositional relationship. You have opponents, if you're in government, clearly, and opposition research, uh, you know, in in government or in opposition, is is pretty much the same. Building up, uh, you talk a bit about this in in the book about mm-hmm. um, building up the kind of bible of quotes, yeah. Um, sort of maintaining, sort of as you say, a working knowledge, a very detailed knowledge of different areas of uh, of policy. When when we came to that 2010 election and uh, moving into into opposition how much of a gear change was that for you in doing that job well the big change going into opposition and i've seen people talk about this in relation to the tories in 97 as well is not that it's not so much that the job changes although it does it's that um it actually becomes a lot less busy for quite a long time and um, people don't care about you they're they're right not to because you're not the government anymore um your decisions I say you in the big collective sense. I was a policy officer. I wasn't making big ministerial decisions at any point. But but the, the decisions that the government makes are suddenly being made by a bunch of other people. In the case of the Labour Party, in the case of most parties that leave office, there's a leadership election going on, and all the to, to, to the extent that there's any media interest and energy going on at all in relation to a new opposition party, it's it's about who's the new leader going to be. What does that leadership contest look like? And as a Labour staffer, I wasn't involved in any leadership contest, which was fine by me I sort of kept my head down probably went on holiday that summer or they can't remember and then the the other thing that happens is that there are inevitably quite a lot of staff changes and people move on to new things I think I always expected that I would move on to new things but then as a result of other people moving just vacancies opened up and I thought actually I've only been in this job for two years if I can get an internal promotion I'll do that and see where that leads and I think a lot of careers you don't expect to be there forever. You just you see internal promotions or whatever coming up, and you and you take those opportunities. So yeah, I became uh, what was what was called head of research in the sort of summer of 2010, which was basically leading 4HQ again on the attack side of the operation. So coordinating the work of all the policy officers on what the Tories were doing, and trying to work on getting some of those things into the media with a greater or lesser degree of success and a lot of that that is a it's a tactical rather than a strategic job so you are collecting information you're trying to find stories and that has to be put to the service of a narrative that is created by whoever is leading the party at the time and um, and his or her advisors and while there's a leadership election going on you sort of haven't really got that sort of strategic direction very much and then it can take a while for things to settle. I think one criticism of, of the new leadership in 2010 is it took a while for them to work out what their sort of big strategic critique of the Tories was. And actually, that has been an issue, I think, for, for Labour for some time. But it's an issue for opposition parties in general, or all parties, actually. How do you characterise your opponents? There are a number of different ways that you can choose to do it, different narratives that you can build that have evidence behind them that can be, if you like, you know, footnoted with things that they've done but they may be mutually exclusive and you just have to work out or someone has to work out and make a big strategic choice about what that's going to be. And um, that can happen quickly and it can happen slowly and it can be done well or it can be done badly. And sometimes it sort of, it moves around a bit. I think famously the Tories didn't know, this is before my time, but the Tories didn't know what to do with Tony Blair when he became Labour leader in the mid nineties. 
in terms of whether he was secretly a lefty in disguise, whether he was, you know, dangerous, whether he was too soft, you know, what, what do you want to say about him? And they could have gone with any of them. Well, some of those answers are probably better than others, but you have to choose. Labour equally has found Boris Johnson in particular really hard to deal with in terms of how they characterise him. Mm. And I think the, uh, the the Blair example you, you mentioned, uh, the Conservatives having difficulty defining him, they ended up with sort of uh, a phrase of new Labour, new danger, yeah. which when you think about it for more than about five seconds, doesn't make any sense at all. Um, it, it's neither one attack nor the other. Um, and it does sort of bear the, the imprint of being a, a slogan designed by committee, I think, that um, it's yeah. kind of trying to have have it both ways and not really succeeding in either. Yeah, uh, and it also, I mean, look, it's, it's too late to, it, 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 there's only limited mileage and let's attack this slogan from 20 years ago. But it, what it also does is it really highlights the thing that Labour above all wanted to highlight themselves, which is the new bit. Yeah, your, your other point about the, the time it takes an opposition to sort of hone their attack on, on the government. I think it is fair to say that most people have criticised um, the fact that it did take a while for Labour after 2010 to to decide exactly on, on how they wanted to attack the coalition. Yeah. Um, but there is, there is that problem, as you said, that no one's paying any attention. And so you're, uh, you're, you're struggling to be heard and to try and define what the government is doing is that much more difficult. But d- did you feel that, particularly on the economic um, agenda, the way that um, George Osborne was, was fairly... Uh, brutal about trying to ensure that the public, uh, in the public mind, it was, it was all Labour's fault, and and that narrative really took hold. Do you think there was anything that Labour could have done about that at the time? So, I I don't want to say there's nothing that Labour could have done, but I do think it's probably a harder thing to respond to than some people have suggested. So, I think Osborne and Cameron did a very good job of of pinning the idea that, you know, A, that there was a financial crisis that, that Labour bore some responsibility for, and secondly, that it had prepared for, it had spent the lead up to that, uh, spending too much, which, which was what left the UK in a uniquely weak position and therefore created the need for a significant uh, programme of fiscal consolidation over the course of the Parliament. I think all of those things are contestable and were contested both by some people in the Labour Party and by economists outside it i think the problem is that the big strategic problem for labor at that point was whether they wanted to emphasize under ed miliband the change of direction um because you know labor history has gone in very strange directions since then so um it's it's easy to forget the extent to which ed miliband wanted to present himself as a break from new labor so he used to talk about turning the page on new labor so the sort of the, the disjunction between wanting to emphasize difference and newness compared to the leadership or leaderships that had gone before, while saying actually the critique that you had made of the previous regime is wrong in various ways, and actually most of the things they did were right, is a really hard line to tread. And you can you can either reject the previous leadership more forcefully, but that implicitly um, does reinforce the message that. Uh, that the government, that your opponents are saying about the fact about the mistakes that they made, even if you then get into a second order argument about the nature of the mistakes, or you can say we were broadly right about most of the things we did. We want to do the same thing again, and that is a 
it's what a lot of people in the party probably thought. But the part of the problem with that is it's a rejection of the electorate as much as anything else, because the electorate's just decided that they don't want you to be the government anymore. And if you just tell them that you were broadly right and they were wrong, that's that's not a brilliant vote winning strategy. And I am I am in, in retrospect quite a quite a pessimist about whether Labour could have won the 2015 election under any leader. I am I said earlier I wasn't part of any leadership campaign and I wasn't I wasn't linked to any particular candidate. I worked for the winning one. I would have worked for a different winning one if a different person had won. But in retrospect, I'm not convinced that Labour could have won in 2015, almost whatever the strategy. But there are various different ways in which it might have lost. Mm. And you, you mentioned there about the, the dilemma of how much do you sort of own your own past in a sense? And do you make the argument that actually the, the previous Labour government did do some great things? Um, but on a more tactical level, in the job you were doing, it was your job to collate the kind of uh, the data and the, um, and the, the research to sort of rebut different points yeah. and to provide talking points and lines to take. Um, how much of the previous Labour government's record were you putting into those? I mean, how much of it was saying, well, the government talks about this, but actually when we left office, it was the following? Or was that something that was affected by this strategic dilemma well, about not wanting to own that past? The, the, there's always a bit of that, but that is mostly, that's about benchmarks in various different ways, um, rather than about... Um, uh, rather than about sort of rebutting particular messages. So you're you're reminding people of Labour's record in relation to benchmarks on, say, um, NHS waiting lists, um, especially around A&E waiting lists, which just deteriorated fairly consistently throughout the, the coalition years and, and, and after. And one of the points that you're making quite consistently around, around those are, you know, these these waiting times were falling under Labour and they've started to rise again under the Tories and you need the you need the past bit to make the present and future bit work um, as an argument. Um, there's an attack on uh, on cuts that's going on. The problem is that in the early coalition years, a lot of that was about it was about numbers and spreadsheets, but it wasn't yet very much about. Um, impact on people's lives straight away because because that takes time to bre to breathe through i don't want to i don't want to overstate that um because there was real impact in some areas um but it was only later that i think those cuts became politically hard to sustain for the tories in relation to the, their own electoral coalition um not not in relation to the electorate as a whole um, but you've got to be careful about whether you're speaking to the people who are already supporting you as opposed to the people who um, who you want to to appeal to. Um, and you you can point to people who are. How do I put this? You can point to the effect of cuts on various areas. Um, but if the people that you're trying to appeal to aren't feeling them yet, that has that has some impact, but limited impact. I think it's probably fair to say. So you can make the point, but it may not be one that, that really sticks in people's consciousness because it's not, not something that they they see in their own in their own lives. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I, I sort of I haven't thought about this for a very long time, but I've just remembered the Tory did some really early cuts to um, to child benefit for for higher earners, and that created this wasn't Labour doing in particular, though Labour sort of joined in with it. That created a bigger political storm than a lot of the other cuts. Um, and there are some principled reasons to oppose it to do with um, 
the abandonment of a universalist principle in relation to child benefit. But actually, um, a big part of that was that this was a cut that was going to affect people who wrote for newspapers, as opposed to um, people who didn't have that sort of voice. Um, and the second thing I'd say about that is that although it was a big row, the Tories still did it, and I don't think it had any significant electoral impact at all. So um, you've got to be you've got to be careful about um, assuming that just because you can make a little bit of um, political weather with something, or that a storm, a political storm comes up as a result of a, a government decision, that that bleeds through to anything a few years down the line. A lot of this sort of tactical work, it's about you know you you feed the news agenda for a bit, but you don't necessarily push the, the strategic argument very, very far, especially if you haven't quite worked out what your strategic argument is yet. Mm. And in the work that you were doing, would you have seen that as being your metric is to feed the news agenda to try and ensure the maximum number of negative headlines for the government at any one time? Basically, probably yes, although not in a formal sense, um, because the, that's not that's not what anyone is, is being assessed on. Um, but uh, but yes, you're, you're you're trying to do that. Um, I was also by the autumn of 2010 working on on PMQs, which ended up taking quite a lot of my time, um, which uh, which was a, a sort of a well, we hadn't been in opposition before or not for a very long time. So that was a new function for for my team, um, the team that I was working in, which hadn't really hadn't been working on in government because the equivalent and it's not an exact equivalent, but the, the parallel briefing function for the Prime Minister was being done by um, civil servants and special advisors inside number 10, all of whom vanished from the scene, well, either vanished from the scene or just kept their jobs briefing David Cameron when we went into opposition. So there was quite a lot of new work that our team had to take on as well as going into opposition. Again, this is normal. Um, the, the, the two parties have in one sense, identical functions, although they structure them in slightly different ways, but they also have quite different um, quite different needs in terms of the, the different jobs that they have to service. And um, and one of the one of the big ones moving into opposition was that was the, the sort of su the support for the leader's office took a different form from the way that that unit had supported number 10 in government, which was to say, it was, a, it was a lot more to do. Mm. And of course, you know, this is the perennial thing about moving from government into opposition, all of those functions that previously may have been divided between the uh, the party organisation for the political side and the civil service side for perhaps some more of the briefing and, um, and administrative support, all of that then has to be done by the, the leader's office, but also by the, by the party structure. So you, you have yeah. that sort of dual role that you are essentially both being a political party, but also a kind of shadow civil service as well. Yeah, without necessarily any more resource than you had yes. before. I mean, you you, t you do in the sense that you have short money that you don't have in government, um, but that doesn't make a great deal of difference to the to the staff. Well, I don't I don't remember it making any difference at all to the staff level of the team that I was that I, that I was in, um, and and yes, you are moving from uh, helping to put a bit of a bit of politics into briefing that is being produced by an apolitical civil service to um, to basically doing 
doing all the briefing and there just is a lot there's a loss of content and, also, and a loss of capacity um, and that is mostly disadvantage but to an extent there are advantages to that as well because you just focus on you just have to focus on the political message and the key points rather than I mean if you look at a prime minister's um, well there's various different ways to look at it but if you look at everything that's on the desk of a secretary of state for anything um, some of it is highly political but a lot of it isn't it's just stuff that he or she just has to do um and make decisions on and sign off on which won't necessarily win or lose any votes but has to be done because otherwise bits of the system will fall over so to that extent it would lose the votes if they weren't done um but broadly it's not very political if you look at a prime minister's pnq's briefing book um there's a huge amount of factual information which isn't necessarily very interesting that they probably won't be called a, called upon to read out at all um, but which they need to know in order to deal with hypothetical questions that might come up and the civil service has to do all that in opposition you don't you don't bother with a lot of that stuff because you just haven't got the space mm. and also i mean one of the very few upsides is it does give you perhaps a bit more freedom and a bit more flexibility that the government doesn't have so uh, for example if you're um, you know opposition is purely about what you say rather than than what you mm. you, you you do and so on and there are uh, necessarily fewer people involved in in the process so um to advise the leader of the opposition to to say you know you can claim the following um or you can argue the following it doesn't have to go through several cabinet committees uh, and get sign off from the treasury and and so on may have to get signed off from the shadow treasury of course but um there, there are there are there are fewer sort of stakeholders and just in the context we'll, we'll get on to talking about pmqs in, in a bit more depth in a moment in a moment but you know most of the people who have got the who are able to make the call are in are in the room so you have perhaps got a little bit more um, flexibility and able to be a bit more nimble perhaps yeah that's right i mean there, there are various there are various places where you can say um this is the evidence you need you can make this argument if you want and the main question about whether you make the argument once the evidence is in place is a political one and the, and the key decision maker is you as the leader of the opposition and you know you do it or you don't but yeah you don't have to um you don't necessarily have to ask anybody else or you might choose to but it's it's not it's in one sense easier but there, but there's a there's a heavy responsibility there as well particularly because and this is a problem this is an issue actually that i thought about quite a lot in opposition is you get the the decisions you make and the statements you make can constrain your future decisions and statements in ways that are not necessarily true in other walks of life and it's quite interesting seeing people who come into politics from journalism in particular which happens when you see that a lot in sort of press and comms teams um, on both sides is the big difference between between working as you know, quite a senior journalist writing high-profile political stories is, you know, you can you can do them very well, but there's nobody in an office somewhere keeping a dossier of everything that you've said and everything that's under your byline and assessing it for consistency, because no one no one really minds um, whether you wrote a piece whose thrust was in a different direction six months earlier, whereas in politics this isn't this isn't a party political or an oppositional government point there are people tracking what you say and they will notice if there's an inconsistency and you have to be able to well 
ideally not have it or if you do have it you have to have an account of why you've had it which is that you know it might be that the facts have changed or it might be that you've made a a very deliberate conscious political decision which you're prepared to defend but you can't just go around saying anything just because it'll win you a headline today mm. um and it's and the opportunities there so you do sometimes see oppositions and governments passing up opportunities to win headlines on the grounds that it just doesn't fit their overall strategy which doesn't really happen in the same way in the news media who don't have to have a consistency in their headlines over any given period mm. And as well as having the sort of dossier of what your opponents, what the government have, have said on various things, um, there's also to some degree a need to um, keep a, a dossier and keep a, keep track of what your, your own side is saying. Yeah. Um, and so in, in particular, as you were saying there, the form of words being consistent is something that if there is uh, an extra qualification added to a spending commitment or um, you know something changes from being uh, the next parliament to being five years that may seem like something that to a journalist or someone is is the same thing but it's not the same thing and it might mean something different and all of those things will be noticed and certainly be noticed by the shadow minister and so on so how much of your work was ensuring that that sort of consistency um, of message was was um, adhered to so you try and do that and you have um you have what are called what are called scripts and you've got to be it's easy to just see the, the even the existence of scripts as being a problem um, because it implies a lack of ability on the part of the actual elected politicians to, to think independently and say what they want. Um, but you do need to know what the message is. Um, ideally, you want people who, who can stick to a script in that they can continue to say things that are consistent with the message without necessarily going word for word and appearing to read anything off a script. Um, and what that mostly means with the good politicians is that they that they understand, they have a sort of an internal grasp of the basic position and can riff off it rather than that they can just use the same form of words. Although sometimes you do want to use the same form of words as well. Um, and you'll, well, you'll hear all, all senior politicians using familiar forms of words the Tories are actually especially good at this under Cameron uh in opposition um and you heard the same things coming back again and again I think there have been moments under under all all opposition leaderships the Labour Party where they've been better and worse at doing that um but yeah you need to just make sure that they are that, that they are um sticking to the message and then there's an issue in particular with with spending commitments where um we would try and we, we weren't the enforcement body in the policy team. That's more of a shadow treasury thing. But we we would try and keep track of, of what people were promising. Ideally, they shouldn't be promising anything that hadn't been signed off from shadow treasury. But you get a lot of shadow ministers in general who want to say something interesting, by which they mean they want to say, I would spend money on this or I would not be cutting that. And there might be a good case for it, except that it is adding another figure to a to a dossier. I worked on the um, on the spending dossier that we did when we were still in government um, that got launched early 2010, um, exposing the extent to which. Well, the the argument was that they have that the Tories had promised to spend money on various things that they had not promised enough taxes to pay for or enough cuts to pay for, and. The upshot was they wouldn't be able to they either wouldn't be able to do all these things or they would have to tax more heavily than they said they would or they would have to cut 
more deeply than they said they would. And that's a pretty standard thing that you see governments do to oppositions in every election. I think in 2010, it's actually pretty con- uncontroversial that whatever you think of the um, of the Tory government, they did cut more deeply than I think they ever admitted in opposition that, that they would. And they weren't able to do some of the spending things that they promised to do in opposition as well. Um, but the impact of that at the time was mostly to sort of throw them off a bit in terms uh, slightly destabilize some of their messaging around specific plans um and make them look a bit wobbly around i remember marriage tax allowance was one where they, they were they rode back quite a lot from what they previously said they were going to do but you know let's not let's not overstate the impact of that but the moment when when you release that sort of material um it then does that then does turn questions back onto the opposition to say well which which of these did you mean which of these did you not mean are you prepared to stand by them and a lot of that then depends on a lot of it is how far the media are prepared to keep on pressing it mm. um and and for that exercise presumably being in government um famously the treasury is able to cost the opposition's yeah. policies and so were you having um costings of particular policies being fed to you from the special advisors in the, in the treasury that you were then adding into a Labour Party brief that was then collated into a... Into yeah, a although a, a lot of those costings were not being produced, um, they weren't being produced completely sort of in secret. They were, we would find ways of forcing the Treasury to do those things. So you put mm. down PQs, Yeah. you get friendly backbenchers to ask questions about, you know, how much hypothetically would, it, I can't remember the exact wording, but hypothetically how much would it cost to provide a marriage tax allowance of this value mm. and treasury would say we've been asked this question by a level of entry we better go and find it out at least in theory that's the that's the process yeah. um as i remember it there were a number of lib dem fois which which they put in to ask about the costings of various bits of um v- various tory plans which were not things that we had um asked for but the fact that the lib dems have had foi'd it meant that treasury had to go away and do it and um and that was quite helpful mm. of course that was the the lib dem advisor who who uh, who put the fois and ended up being a spad in the tory treasury so it worked out, worked <laughs> out okay for him um but um uh but but yeah you you are trying to find ways of turning tory quotes saying we'll spend money into analysis inside treasury or you can do it yourself i mean in some, in some cases um, there is enough public domain information that you can just work out how much something would cost the government without asking a civil servant to do any of the work. Mm. So we do a bit of that as well. And then when you're in opposition, obviously you can't directly call on um, SPADs to, to do that work. But as you say, those other methods um, hold as true for, for the opposition as they as they do for, for government. You can get friendly backbenchers to put down the, the PQs that you need. Was that something your team was doing to sort of Yeah, so you're trying to get information via via pqs and fois and things i'm not sure we were ever brilliant at that to be honest i think it's, it's one of these things it's a, it's a learned technique and it took us a while to 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 get good at it um and then there are also you've got to be careful as well because there's some questions that you you don't want to ask government because it gives them a number as well so you probably don't you don't ask them about the costing of your own plans unless you really know what the answer is and you don't think it's that controversial you just want a treasury stamp on it mm. um but yeah, you can get, you can sometimes get decent attack stories out of, out of PQs. The one that I always um, quite enjoyed was um, a, a certain legendary um, conservative spad who's I think worked for the last five or six um, mm-hmm. conservative leaders in total, um, 
made it a speciality to ask um, quite regularly when, when we were in opposition um, for the cost of um, of biscuits at meetings and uh, um, the, the cost of producing branded pens and all those sorts of, sort of yeah. tiny things. Um, and these would go down as round robbing um, uh, either FOI or as uh, written questions to all the different departments and they would sort of come back and then be collated into this sort of extravaganza of a Sunday story of um, uh, I, I think that the classic was you know John Prescott has spent £50,000 on biscuits you know was was the headline that he was yeah. after and you know there was a way of getting there um, so I think there are ways of doing that on the sort of small and um, uh, small and large things um, but in terms of your team you you're, you're talking about sort of the, the the team itself not necessarily um, growing particularly um, in opposition because it's, it's doing sort of a, a similar sort of, of job. Um, but how was it set up um, in, in the party? Um, as I say, sort of declaring an interest, as I think I just, just have, you know, I, I worked in the Conservative Research Department. Yeah. And, and there tends to be just in the sort of, in, in the histories and the, um, and, and the literature on all of these things, the Conservative Research Department does get a lot of attention yeah. as being this sort of um, institution within the, within the party. Um, on the Labour side, less so. Um, so how, how was the, the team set up? Yeah, that's right. I mean, I remember the Conservative Research Department published or someone published a book about the Conservative Research Department, um, mm. sort of a, a history of it. It was clearly written with the full collaboration of, of the CRD um, that came out during during my time working for the Labour equivalent. I think we found it quite quite amusing that they were quite a sort of self-aggrandising um, <laughs> and self-mythologising as they were, because we were very much a behind the scenes backroom team and, and didn't really think of ourselves in any other way. Um, certainly wouldn't have had a book published with photos with with a group photo or uh, or anything like that. Um, yeah, we um, as I say, when I was a policy officer, I had this, the, the sort of the, the the dual responsibility of the the stakeholder management side of policy development and the uh, and the attack side, and that continued in opposition as well for for the policy officers who are managing the uh, what was then called the. Um, partnership into power it was called partnership in power when we were in power and then it's called partnership into power uh, when we weren't and i'm not sure what it's called now it might still be called that i hope not um and um so there would have been oh bet between about five and eight policy officers working on different things so certainly not one per department um some of the some of the smaller departments got combined um some of the uh, you know the economic department sort of got combined as well um, into into one into one brief with a bit of support from from other people and there was and then there were there were research officers as well who are largely working more on sort of general general conservative research a lot of work on donations and um, Tory party structures and, and and things but all of them are keeping an eye on what's on what those departments are doing as well as uh, keeping an eye on what labor is committed to and what we can say and what we can't mm. and then building and then turning that into like there's all sorts of things you're doing with it you're 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 turning it into media stories you're making sure that the that the file of lines to take on everything is constantly updated and that and that people i say you there's a you as a team uh, and and that people who are spokespeople know what those lines are and are properly briefed um and and there's there's keeping an eye on what you've what you've committed to, um, and then quite a lot of just requests coming in from from shadow teams, from the leaders' office, from departments, and so on. Mm. And you've got those 
uh, on the conservative side, usually called um, desk yeah. officers, although although latterly sort of um, in opposition, they they started calling them special advisors, um, who tended to be either embedded with um, their shadow minister, uh, shadow cabinet member, um, or um, based in the in the office, but sort of working with with that team. But then there was a separate. Um, political unit uh, that will be doing a lot of this sort of attack work and and sort of the the famous dossiers. Every every political uh, party loves a dossier, um, but it was it was very much more combined. You're saying uh, no, well, um, the, your team. that team is actually it's slightly separate from what the political advisors were doing, um, who are attached to individual shadow secretaries of state. So um, there would be a fairly close working relationship between the policy officers and the and the political advisors, but they are not the same thing. And the interests don't wholly coincide because um, because the the policy team stays in place regardless of who is any in any given job at shadow cabinet level. Whereas the political advisors are appointed and unappointed with their bosses. Mm. Um, so it's not wholly aligned. So to that, to that degree, you are essentially creating a sort of shadow civil service that you have the, the party's sort of yep. research and briefing function is, is the permanent. Sort yeah, of but a very small one. <laughs> Indeed. Um, so we've, we've gone this far without yeah. talking about Prime Minister's questions. Well, they did, did come up um, um, brief, briefly. How I mean, was that something which um, came with the new no. job you, you started doing? Or was it something that you were um, keen to do or sort so, out? Um, I mean, the, the, the story of, of how I how I came to do it is... Um, how you became it, it may, may or may not be interesting enough to tell, but I'll tell it anyway. Should, but um, during the summer, um, when Harriet Harman was the interim leader, well, no, well, she, she was the leader, because that's how it works in the Labour Party. Uh, she was leader of the Labour Party until she wasn't. Um, but she was doing PMQs, and my, my then boss and some people in her, in her office were running the process. Um, and they kept on... And I had, a, I had some uh, some minor involvement in that in terms of passing a bit of briefing up the line for various different issues, um, but I wasn't I wasn't working on it directly, and and then with some staff changes, my then boss got a job as a political advisor to someone else in the shadow cabinet, um, and in Ed Miliband's second week as leader, um, I I literally got a call at half past six on a Monday morning saying, "Can you be in a meeting with Ed Miliband at eight? and I. I got up and made sure I was. Um, and from that point on, I was in the PMQ's team um, without having particularly attempted to get into it. Um, and it was it was because given my job and the fact that other people had gone, I was the obvious person to do it. But I wasn't at all sure that that was who I was going to keep until I'd been doing it for quite a while. Um, and, and as I say, it was never part, PMQ's was never a big part of, the um of the the job I've had of research in in government um probably not a part at all really apart from maybe a very occasionally providing a, a bit of briefing um certainly wouldn't have been in the room uh, but you just have to build a new team a new structure in opposition to work out how you're going to brief the leader to make sure you do it and I was I was fortunate enough to to just find myself in the right place at the right time and and manage to stay there um throughout um throughout Ed's time as leader and, and, and a bit and a bit beyond. Um, and my role in that was to provide, well, to provide the briefing side of it, really. Um, so it, there was a, it, it was a sort of a multi, a multifaceted 
job within that operation um but partly what is going on what are the facts around these issues we want to ask about partly drafting the early drafts of questions which will be heavily reworked in the room um partly uh working through those questions in rehearsal so i would i would pretend to be david cameron back at um back at ed and sort of play through what we thought the most likely answers were going to be um and refine the questions in response to that which is partly it's partly what do you think the the correct policy answer is from a conservative point of view what what is their line to take on this topic partly what will he try and do politically in terms of trying to attack you trying to dodge the question whatever it might be um and you know you you predict that up to a point some of it you can get you can be really confident that you get right and some of it is guessing um and some of it is coming up with your own your own jokes and attacks that the prime minister might not use but at least you're you're helping you're helping your side to work out what sorts of things you're vulnerable to mm. and you, you talk in the book about um the sort of the how much of a sort of dominant thing it, it is for the for the leader um it is the most high profile sort of parliamentary occasion of the week um it's a rare opportunity for the opposition to be heard and to to get that um soundbite on the news um, but it just takes up an enormous amount yeah. of, uh, of of time and um, and and preparation. So, um, it, you know, beginning from I think you said from either certainly Friday, but perhaps even sort of Thursday, in commissioning um, a note. So there's quite a process that went into yeah. into the weekend and the weekend box, and then sort of through until the yeah. The, so it did take it did take quite a long time. Although I think some of it you can slightly overstate. I think we um, we commissioned a note from from policy officers on on Fridays about you know are there any good PMQ candidates in your in your topic area um partly as a note for for Ed but also actually as a sort of a, a, a as a discipline point for policy officers to think politically about what what the most is, important issues in their area were so I mean then the overall PMQ's enterprise I think would have worked fine without that but it's just quite a quite a useful way of focusing people's minds um but it really kicked off on a on a monday um when we'd have a, a brief meeting um just to, to think about what topics we wanted to explore um and then i'd go away and write up as many question sets as that took um and often it would be i definitely want to go on health but sometimes it would be i've got three different things i could go on can you try and work up three different sets and that would that's just harder it just takes longer um so i got quite good at writing well not not a six question set a five question set because you'll leave the sixth one blank because the, the sixth one is you're normally going to be a just a political wrap-up anyway and you sort of write that later but what's how do you structure a set of questions so that you you force you force it in the direction you want and get the right issues out you'd write those and then you'd spend some of Tuesday afternoon or evening working through that and then most of Wednesday morning doing the same which was a lot of time um it was a lot of his time um it was probably you know more of my time but it it, it should have been because you try and take more time take take time away from the leader's diary and give it to staff to do um but uh it is there's an argument that it was too much time but it was certainly 
Yeah, under Jeremy Corbyn, less time was spent on PMQs. Um, I did that for a, a few months at the start of his leadership before I moved to a different job. Um, and there, there are real advantages to spending less time on it. Um, I don't think Jeremy was in general as good at PMQs, but was he, you know, was he that much worse uh, as a result of um, of not spending as much time? I don't think that's the case. And I, I believe, although I don't know, I'm not part of the process now. Um, I don't think I don't think Keir Starmer spends quite as long on it as Ed Miliband did. Although I mean, I, I've not I've not worked for a political party during lockdown, but I just don't think you could spend as long in a Zoom meeting. As as you could knocking ideas around a room in a way that's that we that, that we could physically um, back before mm. lockdown when people were allowed to see each other. And there's also perhaps a, a sense in which um, certainly during this period PMQs has been slightly muted. Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, there have been been some in, in, in recent weeks where which, which will come alive, but I think inevitably with with fewer people in the chamber, it's not quite such the such a gladiatorial contest. Um, and and also the. At the point you made about um, Jeremy Corbyn spending less time on it, it was almost a, um, a positive choice yeah. that was made to try and downgrade the importance of, of that confrontation. Yeah, I don't, um, I don't think he liked it very much. Um, and I think it, there is a real issue with, you know, all, almost all parliamentary performance has an air of artificiality about it. And I think, I think Jeremy probably resented that more than some other people did. Um, and, uh, and had less time for it. I think, I think with more work, he could have he could have been better at the rejoinders at the at the at the dance of it of making your opponent look stupid of coming back with a factual rebuttal or a joke or whatever, um, which I do think helps your overall um, side's confidence. It helps how you're portrayed and seen in the media. I think if you are not very good at something and you don't make a big effort to be good at it, that just does affect the way in which people think of you mm. as a leader um, or, or, or in any walk of life. You know, if you're not very good at something, you don't try to get better at it. Then if you've got to do it and people see you do it, they will think less of you. Um, so I think, I think Jeremy could have benefited from, from spending a, a bit more time trying to improve, but, to be fair, he spent a lot of a lot of his time up against someone who also wasn't very good at it. Mm. Um, in Theresa May, who um, you know, th those were those were quite. As I say, I didn't work on these myself, but they were quite pedestrian encounters on both sides. Um, they had their moments, but but not very many of them. Mm. And I was talking about sort of PMQs being perhaps a bit downgraded during lockdown, but yeah. certainly during those years. Um, it did seem that um, you know the attendance on the, both benches were were sort of um, rather sparser than you would expect, and they, they lost something of their of their zing, didn't they? Because you had yeah. increasingly both both leaders um, facing quite a lot of opposition from their own side, and people just not being too fussed about coming along and cheering. Yeah, I think that's. I mean, these things are are quite interrelated. It's if people weren't turning up as much for PMQs. It wasn't just because they didn't think it was going to be as much fun as it might have been when William Hague and Tony Blair were doing it, for example. Um, also, that on both sides, especially on, on the Labour side, people weren't particularly, you know, MPs 
weren't particularly supportive of, of of the leader didn't necessarily want to stand behind him and yell but then also if you think your side if you think your leader isn't very good you don't want to be standing to sit, sit, you don't want to be sitting behind him um yelling about how, how mm. you know yell, yelling at the other side if you don't if you're not feeling it um so these things also they sort of become um self-reinforcing i think mm. And they, they do have an importance to in terms of party management, as you say, that um, everyone agreed that the only thing William Hague had going for him during his time as leader of the opposition was that he was good at PMQs. And it did give the uh, the Conservative um, MPs a, a bit of a spring in their step every every Wednesday that they knew that he was going to be able to put on a good performance. Um, but ultimately, it didn't actually matter in electoral terms, you can argue. Um, but it perhaps um, prevented his position as leader being um, challenged perhaps as much as it, it might have otherwise been given his performance um, during those years. And then Ian Duncan Smith, who was in a similarly um, weak and abysmal position um, politically, was then very bad at it. And that perhaps did matter um, yeah. to, to his position. Well, it's about where power, where different kinds of power derive from as well. If you're in opposition against a uh, a party that's got a majority of over 100 or indeed as we are now a party that's got a majority of 80 you are um you are never going to win a vote um but you might still win an argument and sometimes when you win an argument everyone knows you've won the argument and it doesn't mean that 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 doesn't lead to any other political win in the short term but it does change the way in which both sides see their leader and actually one of the one of the most important aspects of it one of the most important aspects of PMQs is that if the opposition is regularly winning PMQs, um, I mean, by definition, the opposition doesn't have as many MPs. That's why they're that's why they're there. Um, if the opposition is regularly winning PMQs, that that does start to change the level of confidence that the government's MPs have in their leader, and that can feed, like, can potentially feed leadership speculation and challenges and so on. But it, at least just feeds a level of confidence and worrying that your guy isn't quite up to it um, and I'm not sure actually that it ever got to that point with Blair against Haig really I think they were both just pretty good at it but Haig was good at it um, but they sort of gave as good as they got um, but I think um, th th there were th there have been moments with other leaders where other prime ministers where poor performances at PMQs have been part of the problem mm. And we know that sort of a, a bad performance by a, a prime minister when they're facing a, a, a political problem can can certainly exacerbate that. Um, and uh, you, you'll have seen from sort of looking back at, um, at previous um, prime minister's questions that Neil Kinnock was often criticised for not not pressing Homie's advantage against yeah. Margaret, Margaret Thatcher. The sort of he's very self-critical about sort of some of his his failings and was often seen as being too long-winded and and so on um, uh, to be able to press home the advantage. Um, I'm interested to know sort of when you started doing that job. Um, obviously, in in the book, you've got a, a lot of um, reflections and um, sort of tips from your experience um, over those those years that you were doing it. But how much did you know before you were doing it? I mean, did had you looked back at previous PMQs and tried to get a sense, or did you try and do that as you went along to, to try and so, work out what made a good PMQs? A bit of it as I, as I went along. Um, but I, mean, I was always, you know, you, you probably don't get this, you, you don't try and get the sorts of jobs that, 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 I, I, that I was, that I was in, if you're not quite interested in these things. So I do remember, 
um, watching or especially actually listening to PMQs on the radio long before, well, when I was, you know, when I was a, a student or before before I had a, the opportunity to work in politics. So I was sort of aware of it. I, you know, I remember those Hague Blair encounters and some of those Blair major encounters. Um, but um, I, I don't think it was hugely, um, I don't think my work was huge, was, then was hugely influenced by sort of historical reflection, it's probably fair to say. There were moments where you thought you can do something a bit like this. I think now I quite often think um, there's something that David Cameron did or there's something that William Hague did that Keir Starmer could do profitably now. Um, not completely the same thing, but do something analogous and it might serve him quite well. Um, but it's not my job anymore to, to, to worry about those things. Um, but I don't recall ever um, ever saying to to Ed Miliband, you should try and do what what William Hague did this one in 1999. <laughs> you should you should, you should try the 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 Hague sort of double something gambit. Yeah, I mean or... Hague was Hague <laughs> really thought about this stuff. Um, and this, this well, he's got his own his own lexicon, hasn't he? Of yeah. all the different strategies he deployed. Yeah, yeah, and and there some of them are. A universal in, in application and um, and could definitely be be used again. And have been used again. And actually, we're, and and were some of them are for some of that. These are things that he gave names to, but they're actually also fairly obvious. So um, you know, having a PMQs where you you move from departmental policy topic to departmental policy topic um, under under an overall theme that might be um, I, well, it could be anything but a, a wider political theme about, um, you know, incompetence or- um, Overspends or something. Overspend or, or yeah. um, uh, you know, lack of, um, or, or op opposition from, from on your own benches or whatever it might be. And then you sort of flit around. That, you know, Haig, Haig might be better known for, for doing that, but actually everyone and anyone can do it. Keir Starmer done a bit of that. Um, Ed Miliband certainly did a bit of that. It's it's pretty obvious. And in terms of the the sort of the tactical um, uh, approach to it, um, there's, there's there's some quite good um, kind of summaries in the book about sort of you know how you go through and how you you order your questions um, and um, what you're trying to achieve in each of them. Because I mean, six questions is quite a a challenging. Um, thing to do when you've got you know you can go in different directions um, one thing I don't think Ed, Ed Miliband ever ever really did was to split the questions uh, uh, except perhaps I think when there might have been some particular sort of um, issue of national significance that he might have asked the first question yeah. and then come back but um, but something that I know that William Haig did um, quite a lot was to actually keep Blair guessing because one of the advantages he identified was that if Blair didn't know which was the last question, he didn't know when to use his his own rebuttal zinger. So if you ask sort of four and it looks like you're doing all six and then you stop and then come back later on with two, there's things like that. Um, and that's not something I, I think Ed ever, ever did. So um, there are different ways, there are different ways you can do it. So um, Haig would sometimes ask, ask just five questions and I don't think there's any big, big disadvantage to that. And it does stop the does stop the prime minister coming back with that big hit on six, because they, the prime minister always has the last word. Um, I think I'm right in saying that Ed always, always, always asks six questions. Um, he did split them 
fairly often, but not as often as we, um, as not, I don't, not we, I wasn't necessarily the main advocate of this, Bruce Grocott, Lord Grocott, who had worked, he worked with every, um, every Labour leader from, um, from Kinnock onwards on, on PMQs, um, except John Smith, I think, um, always used to say, you should ask three and three, ask three, sit down, come back a bit later. Um, and he very rarely did that. He more often would, would just switch topic halfway through a set of six. Um, but there are so many different ways of doing it. Um, Jeremy Corbyn quite often would ask a completely new, ask on a completely new topic and often, and often a not very political topic on question six, um, just to, again, to knock the ability of the prime minister to do a big attack on six. So, so you'd ask about, you'd ask five big political questions and you'd ask something relatively consensual and factual on six. And the prime minister would have to say, well, I'm making this one up, but I have to say something like, um, yes, I will raise that issue with, um, with, 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 with President Macron next time I see him at the summit. It's like, that's not what I wanted to do on six. I wanted to tell you what a, what a waste of space you are. Um, but, but yeah, there is a bit of, it's a, someone in the book, I think George Osmond described a sort of a scripted dance um, where you're both, um, you, you, you know roughly what's coming. Um, you know, both sides know roughly what the other side is going to say, but you've still got to get it right and get the better of them. So it's, it's, it's rehearsed on both sides. It's partially scripted on both sides, but you don't see it all come together till, till both sides are in the room together. And what struck me about that, um, both from reading the book and also other interviews that um, that you and um, Aisha gave uh, yeah. about it, is that this this idea that sort of, well, uh, isn't it all scripted? Well, it is, but it's it, it's scripted on both sides, and, mm -hmm. and and you're having to anticipate. So, what struck me about that was that it, it is essentially the political debate of the time in microcosm. So, mm -hmm. it, it is a general election campaign in microcosm that you are having to you know what the other side's positions are, you've researched it carefully, you know what their lines are, you have to work out where the chinks in the armour are. They know you're going to do that and they're going to do... It is basically sort of every week trying to sort of distill the entire sort of political debate into that, as you say, scripted, but kind of strategized war, but becoming yeah. sort of down to the tactical level. And is, is, is that, do you think, to sort of make a, a grandiose point? Is, is that really the wider significance of PMQs for parties that in terms of the job you were doing in uh, particularly as sort of um, when you were um, sort of in charge of rebuttal and, 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 and research as well that is basically what you're doing for the for the party and for the for the um, election campaign that you're trying to anticipate everything you can possibly be attacked on find yeah. the lines to, um, to to cover those and and to hit back and that's basically what you're having to do at PMQs but also in an election campaign. Yeah, that's right. And, and, and it's it sort of, you have, you know, the dynamics sort of flow through the parliamentary term as well. And th there'll be some weeks where there's some weeks where you're really looking forward to PMQs because you've got lots of material you can hit them with. And then some weeks where it's a problem and you're really just trying to get through six questions without being hit too hard. And there are ways to do that that includes, you know, just not asking about the topic that everyone expects you to ask about. But then they'll notice that you haven't asked about it and say, well, maybe your position's weaker than we thought it was. I mean, there's sort of there's a lot there's a lot of um, of dimensions to it in terms of the rebuttals that you know that they'll throw at you. Well, not just rebuttals, but um, attacks. So um, in any given week, 
there will be bad stories about the Labour Party and the media that you can expect the Prime Minister to, to throw at you. And, you know, we would we would spend time compiling those into a file um, and making sure that we knew what they all were so that we had lines of rebuttal. And that that's sometimes, you know, Ed would ask to take that. And, you know, you send him call that. that. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, this was the, um, the, the a, a file that we called the bucket of shit. Um, that uh, that was all all the crappy stories that he's going to get attacked by, attacked on, and you know he didn't really want to hand that to Melbourne on a Tuesday night so that he could go home and just read twenty pages of um, <laughs> not even attacks on him, twenty pages of daft things people in the Labour Party had done um, that he could now do nothing about that David Cameron was going to was going to have a go at him about. Um, but you just have to part of the job of um, of managing a few accused processes to know to know what your vulnerabilities are and your vulnerabilities are whatever whatever bad stuff might have happened including things you might not know about i mean there, there are there are the leader of the Labour party hasn't got time to read all the papers and there's a lot of stories that might turn up on on guido forks or whatever that he's just not aware of and if he's if someone else doesn't prepare him for it he's not going to know about it until until the prime minister shouts about it um so you just have to make sure you've got it all and that if you haven't got a line on it that you at least know that it's coming mm. and i think one of my favorite anecdotes um in the book was when i think you you got almost too good at that uh, in the early days of um of jeremy corbyn in preparing him for um for what he might be facing as a rejoinder from the prime minister um <laughs> you, you tell the story of uh, of how you felt slightly awkward in that PMQ's um, prep meeting with some of his um, yeah. former campaign staff and true believers so sitting do, around the room. Prep again. This was in the, in the early days, and it probably he probably changed um, changed his system towards the end. I, I did the first few months, but his he would do the run throughs much more as a sort of a confidence boosting, thinking about what it was like to be in the room sort of exercise than what I was used to with Ed, which was a much more sort of a small group, um, just work, work through it and spot the, um, you know, spot the pitfalls. So with Jeremy, I would have to sort of um, come up with what I thought were the best approximations of Cameron's attacks in front of a really full room of, 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 of his staffers. Um, and I was, you know, I was an HQ staffer rather than a Corbyn staffer. And there's, well, there are there are some tensions that have been well documented, and then others that I think are overstated. Um, but um, certainly, I wasn't part of the the, the, the inside group um, at that point, and it was a it was a bit awkward when you when you come up with attacks on him um, and shout them at him in that room full of full of his people, and then he goes downstairs and Cameron is very polite to him. It is it it, it is a bit awkward. Um, you know, not the end of the world. You get over it, but you sort of you, you're you're conscious that you are th that you might be getting a reputation for for, for being for, for being rude to him. So, so slightly too gleeful. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, you're, <laughs> but you but you also you have to try and do that. I mean, you, it's part of the job of preparing yeah. you know your your principal for for what he's about to go through is is making sure that that he recognises that. People are, you know, the, the leader, the, the leader, the prime minister, is going to be rude to him, and is going to try and, you know, um, get as much political mileage as possible. And as I say, one of the things in those early in those early weeks, 
um, with 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 Jeremy Corbyn was um, Cameron was Cameron didn't do very much attacking. He was quite polite. One of the downsides of Jeremy's early strategy of asking crowdsourced questions, which you might remember, where he got people to to write in mm. and say, you know, your questions will be my questions. Tell me what you want to know, is that a lot of them weren't particularly testing questions, um, and so they were they were much more open ended than I think. Um, was ideal um and although the people who you know the people who are writing in might have thought of them as quite difficult questions in the end what they amounted to was so david cameron can you ex- can you explain your housing policy to me mm. um and then he would um and of course you know you might you might not agree with conservative housing policy but they had a line they knew what it was and they could they could reel it off in a fairly attractive and convincing way for for three sentences which is all mm. you need to do at pmqs um and working out you know, the difference between writing one good question and writing a pointed focused series of five or six questions is completely different and you can't ask the public to do the second one you can only ask them to to come up with one question and so there were the, there was a limit to the political effectiveness i think that that that's that, that could ever have even though it served him well in the sense of a enabling him to demonstrate that he was um, that he was doing something new on behalf of the public. So he's asking questions the public wanted to wanted to have asked, rather than the questions that um, you know political insiders might want to know about. And also, it was quite an effective defensive technique because um, one of the reasons Cameron was polite, it wasn't just that he was being asked these open questions where he could say, well, let me tell you about my housing policy. It was also that if he had been rude, it's not just being rude to Jeremy, it's being rude to, you know, Julie from Littlehampton or mm. whatever it might be, who'd sent the question in. So you just have to be a bit, a bit more polite and people didn't, didn't heckle as much, but that took, that did take some of the air out of it, I think. Mm. And it also, I think, started to get to a, um, a point where it almost became like the in Duncan Smith thing about um, which again you uh, you, you re- re- relay in the book about how uh, if you always open your questions in the same way um, just in the context of the the chamber people start to become wise to it and it becomes a bit of a running joke um, yeah so yeah, you, I, must, I must say point. when when I think there were occasions when Jeremy would open with something like um I'd like to ask a question on behalf of whoever, and you would get sort of groans from the Tory side, which was a very bad look mm. because it, you know, it, it isn't him; it, it is a member of the public. Um, so, well, to that extent, it, it worked, didn't it? Because yeah, you know the the um, you know the, anything that could be said back to that would reflect badly on them. Um, yeah, if there I was think, any suggestion I, of that, I think for for all the criticisms you made, I think I think it's fair to say that Jeremy mostly got mostly got what he wanted to get out of pmqs mm. um most of the time um which isn't to say he he didn't palpably lose some of them but he he did he did also palpably win some of them mm. you know um you can the more combative you go in with the more combat you'll have and the the more the ability to win or lose is and although although jeremy in some ways was very very keen to attack the Tories on a whole range of uh, of issues he actually wasn't very competitive at PMQs most of the time and that didn't necessarily serve him badly in terms of where his where his strengths and weaknesses as a politician lay 
Mm. And also denied the, the the prime minister the opportunity of of coming back at him as well yeah, if, yeah, if, right. if if you're not being combative. I just want to touch um, briefly on um, you also, as you, as you you say in your uh, author's profile that you spent more of your life impersonating David Cameron than you ever thought you you would. That wasn't just in terms of PMQs. Also, um, I think you you prepared Ed Miliband for the uh, the leaders' debates as well in uh, in yeah. a general election. How much of more of a different different experience was that? It was it was very different. I did a, 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 I did a bit of Cameron and a bit of Nigel Farage at the um, at those um, at those uh, those meetings. It was it was very different from from PMQs prep in in lots of ways. Although having done PMQs prep made it easier because I was sort of it, that helped me to be more on top of what the government's what what David Cameron's answers were likely to look like. But the building of so so the the David Cameron sort of file for. Um, for debate prep was fairly similar actually in lots of ways to the David Cameron file for, for PMQ's prep. I also did a bit of Nigel Farage, which um, which largely consisted of printing out the UKIP manifesto and also knowing roughly how he talked. I don't mean in terms of his his voice because it's, it's not an impersonation job. Um, it never should be, at least if you're like me, not particularly a, a accomplished mimic. Um, it's more about just knowing knowing what the lines to take are going to be um but yeah that was much more about understanding what the debate format was um knowing how you know there were one minute answers 30 second answers i can't remember anymore but um relatively long answers we'd all game game them all out and what that process really revealed was and like this this can sound like sour grapes and isn't um it, it you know it was what it was but I think Labour, because of the format of those debates, was quite strategically disadvantaged in a way that the Tories weren't, because it was very much in the Tories' interests for, for example, for the SNP to do well, in a way that it wasn't for Labour. Um, that was even more the case in the debate that Cameron wasn't even part of. Um, there was a, uh, there was one, there was one debate with Cameron in it, and one debate with I think Cameron and Clegg not present. Uh, which is sort of the challengers debate where leaders of all the other parties were there. Um, and and it just became, it was really interesting playing Cameron, realising that I could just sort of gesture over at the other people bickering and saying, and, and just say something like, if you want five years of these people arguing with each other, then vote for them. But if you want, if you want strong government, vote for me. Um, which... I think he did do something like that during the yes. d- during the debate, but as I say, that's not that's just really obvious. Once, mm. once you're in, once you're in that dynamic, rehearsing it, it becomes really clear that that, that is just available to him, and that yeah. every time, um, every time Nicola Sturgeon attacks the Tories, it hurts Labour. Every time Nicola Sturgeon attacks Labour, it hurts Labour. Every time Labour attacks Nicola Sturgeon. <laughs> 90% of UK voters are going, I don't care about this. Mm. He's having a fight that is not important to me. So um, it was it was really interesting seeing how, how the dynamic of the different electoral battles that each party was having um, in terms of who it was competing against in different parts of the country affected the way in which each party had to perform. And it just was harder, I think. I think Labour were in a tougher strategic position in relation to that debate than some of the others. And Nicola Sturgeon was in the best position because um, 
because she could talk about Scotland all the time. And anyone who, like, I don't want this to come across the wrong way, anyone for whom talking about Scotland was irrelevant because they weren't in Scotland was irrelevant to her too, because they couldn't mm-hmm. vote SNP. It wasn't their problem. It just reminded them of the fact that they were an important dynamic in the election who, if they ended up in government at all, would would likely be in government um, with a Labour Prime Minister. And if that's something that they weren't comfortable with, then the Conservatives were the right option for them, as David Cameron presented it. Mm. And um, yeah, I don't want to overstate the importance of debates. I think Labour probably over um, overemphasized debates in the run up to them and wanted them to happen, which is what happens to everyone, I think, who's who's an underdog. You sort of look for your opportunities, and the debate was an opportunity. But um, I and I think Ed did fine in them, um, broadly speaking. But but the they are very rarely game changers, and it certainly mm. didn't change the game. Yeah, and in general, do you think that they are, they have um, changed the way that election campaigns run? I think David Cameron has since said that he thought the 2010 campaign, um, particularly because of the sort of clegmania, I suppose, as well, but he, he thought that it sucked the air out of the campaign itself, that uh, you had these three um, sort of debates that was the first time it had happened, and particularly at that election. By, by 2015, Cameron was, I think it's fair to say, um, slightly less keen to do the debates at all. Um, and, um, and obviously Theresa May afterwards um, tried to get away with not doing any of them and, and and got rather more flack for it than she anticipated. Um, but do, do you think they have changed the, the dynamic of, um, of elections? And I think they changed it more. I think you're right that they changed it more in 2010 when, as in, I don't think that they necessarily changed the result in any way, um, but they changed the way the campaign ran because so much of that campaign was, there's going to be a debate in two days. There's going to be a debate tomorrow. There's a debate tonight. Here's a debate. How did that debate go? There's another one next week. And, and that's and that affected all parties' ability to run the sorts of the sorts of stories um, and have the sorts of arguments that they would otherwise have had. But as I say, I don't want to make claims about that winning or losing the, the election for anybody. I think people are just less interested by future. I think maybe this is just me but I, I found the 2017 and 2019 debates pretty underwhelming to be perfectly honest the 2015 ones I was probably too close to to have any sort of objective view on their overall significance in the grand scheme of things but I don't think they were necessarily very important apart from in helping to reinforce some views about what the I think you know I think the the debates just by their very format provide a, dra- a dramatization of that famous poster of Ed Miliband in Alex Hammond's pocket, mm. um, which certainly didn't do the Tories any harm, but I wouldn't want to overstate the importance of them. Um, I, I shouldn't say, as someone who's worked on them, that I find TV debates quite uninteresting, but I just do. I, I, <laughs> I, wouldn't, I wouldn't choose to watch them, generally speaking. Um, and I don't think that they, I don't think they tell you very much. Um, and yeah, I would, I, I, I would, you know, the, the genie's out of the bottle or the cat's out of the bag or whatever it is, is out of the whatever it is. Um, so we're always going to have TV debates now. Um, but I would happily go back to a world where we don't. Mm. And did you play a role as well in preparing um, 
uh, Ed particularly for the the sort of the long form grilling, which perhaps people have have said is is perhaps a, a more challenging uh, thing to do when you when you're sitting down with uh, whether it was Jeremy Paxman back in the day or whether it was Andrew Neal, uh, a sort of half hour or or you know an hour's grilling by one or one of those. Yeah, so we prepped for that at the same time. So I was I was part of the team that worked on that. Yeah, it was um, it was actually most of the time. I, think I might have done this a bit but most of the time it's actually Alistair Campbell pretending to be Jeremy Paxman in those, um, in, in, in those, those meetings and he was he's quite good at it in terms of being hostile one thing that I thought was really interesting about the dynamics of that if you remember there was um, and again this is not this is not a complaint it's an observation there was a, a half hour interview with um, or there, there was a half hour audience Q&A and then a half hour yeah. Paxman interview with both leaders and I can't even remember who went first. I think Cameron went first. Um, and it was really noticeable that nearly all the questions Cameron got asked by the audience were quite, they were quite policy heavy questions. They were, you know, what are you going to do about group X policy Y? Um, and the questions that Ed got asked were much more, um, much more character focused, personality focused. Um, when I say that's not a complaint, I think if anything, that worked to end advantage because I think those are more interesting questions that gave him an opportunity to sort of riff off them and um, and talk about who he was, um, which is no bad thing from an electoral point of view. But it was really striking that that I did think that just in terms of the choice of questions, there was a real imbalance in the way that those um, that, that those were done. Um, that's the audience questions rather than, more more than the interviews, I think. Um, where, as I remember it. Paxman was was hostile to both of them, although in in obviously different ways because of the nature of the, mm. the sorts of the sorts of issues that they both that they both raised. Um, but um, yeah, the um, the famous um, "Am I tough enough?" Hell yes, I'm tough enough. Thing. Um, I remember at the time people saying, "This is an awful line. I can't believe they rehearsed that." And the only thing I'll say about that is whether you like the line or not, that was not a rehearsed line. Mm. That really did come out of nowhere. That was an unexpected, um, an unexpected soundbite that he, that I think he just did off the top of his head at the time, and then tripped off the stage as he was leaving. I, I seem to remember as well, <laughs> which is again, again something which you can't ever prepare for. Well, I, you can't. Ever, I, I always say one of the um, one of the the things you people sometimes self mythologize um, as political advisors, or indeed mythologize them. Um, or give them a power that they don't have, and actually, most of the time, they're not—they're not very powerful. They're just—they're just passing notes to people. Um, but I did quite literally tell Ed Miliband not to trip off the stage <laughs> um, before before that debate, and he did. So that, that's a—that's um, an indication of um, of how of how important advisors are in terms of uh, the, the influence they have on events. <laughs> um, and just finally, just looking across uh, your experience in, in, in opposition and, um, and doing the, the, the job that you've done, I mean, um, it's often described as a, an utterly thankless task, um, but it, it is a, um, an, an important part of, of holding the government to account and, um, and fulfilling that sort of constitutional role and also providing um, the electorate with a, a credible choice um do you, do you think that there is a, a certain sort of um skill set that is is learnt sort of in opposition that um 
is 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 useful more generally um, about the kind of discipline of of trying to see, particularly in the things that you've been doing, um, of trying to see the other side's um, point of view and trying to sort of anticipate arguments and and see the kind of the the breadth of the political debate and think it through. Um, that this whole sort of oppositional dynamic actually is something which perhaps not enough people, perhaps let's say in sort of Twitter discourse, for example, put themselves through that, that if you're being a good opposition or indeed a good government, you, you have to know your opponents and you have to genuinely engage with their arguments. Is that something that you think is is perhaps missing in some of the, the parts of um, the political debate that, that have become quite yeah. frustrating? I don't, know about, I don't know about missing, but I would say I think it's always, almost always, a good discipline to understand well two things one is what your opponent's actual arguments are and what they actually believe and say rather than the way that they are sometimes presented and and caricatured and that's not to say that you shouldn't sometimes caricature them or that you shouldn't represent your opponents in the in ways that most advantage your side but you do need to know what's what's underneath it or you'll or you'll go wrong quite quickly and i think the other the other thing that comes out of that is understanding and and this is harder to do i think for people who are politically partisan and have a have a strong affiliation to 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 any any given party is to to understand why people might genuinely support the other party and want to vote for them and understand that 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 can amount to reasons that go beyond they are bad people or they are greedy or they are just doing it because of a um, a promise that's been made to them that um, that was a lie or wh- wh- whatever it might it might be. And I try and say that in non-partisan terms. I think it's a that's a point that that would extend to to people on the opposite side from me as well. I've certainly heard I've heard Tories whose assumptions about why people support the Labour Party are way off base, at least so far as I or anyone I've ever met. Is concerned. Um, I don't want to overstate the extent to which you should spend time in your opponent's head, but you should try and spend a bit of time there just to understand that that they have reasons for what they're trying to do. Great. Well, thanks very much, Tom, for for joining us. And I, as I said before, I, I highly recommend uh, the book Punch and Judy Politics, uh, which came out quite a few years ago now. And as you predicted, the uh, the uh, the central characters have changed, but the lessons I think go on. So thanks very much for joining us. Not at all. Tom Hamilton there on the benefits of at least trying to see things from your opponent's point of view. Something which I think is not just advantageous for political advantage, but also something that is uh, worth reflecting on in our political discourse more generally. Trying to see why somebody might hold a different view to yourself is always something that I think is worth doing. And if we haven't plugged the book enough, I will do so once again, because it is an excellent book, Punch and Judy Politics, An Insider's Guide to Prime Minister's Questions, published by Biteback Books, and it's co-authored by Aisha Hazarika and Tom Hamilton, and I would highly recommend that. That is all for this episode of Opposition Cast, uh, but before I go, uh, just a word of thanks to Ian Dale and to uh, Mace Magazine, uh, who have included Opposition Cast in their top 50 political podcasts. And if you want to see exactly where we've been placed, 
uh, then go and have a look at that at macemagazine.com and you can find uh, Ian Dale's uh, top 50 on there. Very grateful uh, for that. Uh, if you want to make sure that we stay as a top-ranking podcast, as I think we're going to call ourselves now, uh, make sure that you are subscribed. Leave us a, a positive rating and a review. That will help other people uh, to find the podcast, but also put, take us up those rankings. Pass on the word to other people you think might be interested. And if you haven't already, uh, do go back and listen to some of the previous episodes. We'll be back with another episode before too long. But until then, thanks for listening. Look after yourselves. And I'll see you soon. Opposition Cast is produced by the Centre for Opposition Studies and presented by me, Nigel Fletcher. Our theme music is by Tom Hector and you can find us online at oppositionstudies.org. Am I tough enough? Tough enough? Hell yes, I'm tough enough. <laughs>